Welcome to episode 20 of the Corporate Real Estate Insider podcast. Hard to believe it has already been 20 episodes. John Jarvis is back from an amazing surf trip in Peru. Excited to hear how that went. Uh, let's jump right into real estate talk with Brian. Uh, some more emerging news on WeWork this last week. Let's hear it. Thanks, Tucker. So on Wednesday of last week, WeWork came out in a five-minute conference call with their landlords and said that they are going to attempt to renegotiate or exit nearly all of their leases. The, the, uh, the wording they used, we are taking immediate action to permanently fix our inflexible and high cost lease portfolio to achieve the sustainable operating model that we need to serve our members for many years to come. I just thought that was uh, worthy of discussion given you, you know, we work sign these long-term leases. They were very bullish on the markets and, uh, you know, have, have exited a number of leases when they, when they did um, their restructuring a couple of years ago. Now they're going back to the well, going back to their landlords and attempting to, um, you know, stir the pot here and try to get landlords to play ball. I think certain locations that are, uh, significantly underperforming and, and have never performed. They'll they'll look to just leave. Um, there was a uh, a case in New York City where they um, they tried to I think bankrupt a single purpose entity and and the courts have have really looked at that uh, unfavorably for for WeWork and in favor of the landlords. Um, so that strategy will be challenging to uh, to continue. But I think it's it's. Um, it's worth discussing what people think about this, uh, where WeWork's going and, and how this is going to play out. I'll take a shot at that. So it isn't like, let's have a conversation. Is this co-working model a valid, sustainable model? I think it, it is. There's a place for short-term, flexible, move-in ready office space. You know, Regis has by and large survived, except for, I guess they all suffer during a downturn because they have this long-term lease commitments and their tenants just roll out of the space. But in fact, um, WeWork is so much nicer than Regis as long as they're allowed to reset price. And these landlords sitting in markets where rents are down 40%, why not restructure? I mean, it's a significant portion of the building occupancy. Give WeWork a chance to reset and survive. Um, I think the landlords play ball and I think it's better space than Regis and there's a place for it in the market as long as it's pricing reset. I'll agree and disagree. I don't think it's necessarily better than Regis in all cases. I think that's a broad statement. I think there are Regis's out there that are newer, that are nicer. They have their own brand called Spaces that has been developed to try and compete with WeWork. Um, but I agree, WeWork has set the bar historically for the quality of, of um, co-working spaces, which has required others to bring up their game. The question I have is, I don't, I don't know how many landlords are actually playing ball, right? Like, is it is it real that they're able to renegotiate these leases or is this just posturing on behalf of WeWork to try and, you know, get others to think they're doing so. I mean, the, you walk, I've, I've toured WeWorks and, and all co-working for that matter over the past six months um, with clients and they're by and large, pretty quiet. Um, maybe unbeknownst to me, all the offices are leased and the desks in the open areas are leased, but it sure didn't feel like they're exactly crushing it. Um, and I just don't know if they're going, you know, you, we've, there's been a lot of talk about these companies, you know, moving more towards like a percentage rent type of um, operating agreement with the landlords versus a traditional lease. 
So my question is like, if that's what they're requiring and they're not going to sign a traditional lease anymore with a fixed rate that then escalates, let's say 3% per annum, what landlord is going to want to subscribe to that deal? Like what, what landlord is going to say, this is a good deal for me that I'm putting all my eggs in one basket based on the success of this co-working operation. If it's not successful, landlord doesn't do well at all. Um, and I'm just skeptical about how many of these uh, landlords are actually playing ball with WeWork or any co-working um, operator for that matter. Yeah, I think um, I think the jury's out, John, on uh, or whoever mentioned it, that it's WeWork's a better um, built space and a better environment, right? If you listen to Mark Dixon, uh, who's the CEO of Regis, said that they've looked at a lot of, uh, a number of WeWork locations and based on the build out, they don't think it aligns with their customer base, right? So they've, they, they have uh, elected not to assume those leases or to take down space that's become available that was former WeWork space. I think, I think you have to separate the environment that WeWork created through the amenities and the services they provided, which were unsustainable. You know, I had a, uh, a client now that works at a completely different company, different industry uh, on the industrial side, who, um, who was a, a um, kind of a regional manager for WeWork in, in New York City. And he was given a budget, like basically of, of like tens of thousands of dollars a month to, to provide the amenities and the services. This is you know, food and beverage and, and parties and all of the things that you do. And, and if they didn't spend that money, he would actually get, you know, he would get uh, pressure and, and there would be a negative, uh, uh, you know, negative um, feedback towards it if they didn't spend that kind of money. So obviously it's a better environment when you're spending money that you don't have and you're creating this environment that everyone loves to be in. But Let's peel back the onion and, and, and look at what's sustainable and which environments are thriving and which aren't. And, you know, to me, I don't I don't think there's there's much difference really from the model. It depends on the company and the culture. And, and there's a fit for each one and one's better for that type of company, depending upon who you are. And so I think that's first. I think secondly, to your point, I think the co-working model is there to stay. I think the inflexible long term lease strategy of signing these these direct leases, taking huge TI allowances, and being unable to to move with the economy with the markets is is a model that's you know that's really challenging to to be sustainable, um, especially at the size and scale that WeWork was trying to get to. I think this this uh, revenue sharing model is much more sustainable. But I think landlords are getting smart. There's certain landlords that right that would rather. Um, take back the space, control it, and then just bring an operator in on top of it. And if it doesn't work, they're not stuck in an arrangement. They own it, they control it, um, and the operator is replaceable. It's cancelable, right? And and they're they're truly the ones that are controlling the process rather than bringing someone in, leasing space on a, a shared percentage basis, and being at the mercy of of that operator. So I think the industry is going to change very quickly, and I think we work. Um, in its current form is not going to be uh, who it is today in a year. Uh, and our tenants should be, you know, we've, we've started an outreach educating um, this marketplace in Boston around uh, the challenges that WeWork is facing. WeWork has an, a lot of locations with a lot of tenants like they do in most markets around the country. And I think the, the general consensus from companies is, is, yeah, we'll wait and see what happens. And I think that's okay. It, it, for some, I think 
not having a contingency plan in place is um, is a missed opportunity because the the most landlords do not have the ability to assume these licenses and to operate them, right? So all of the services, yes, we get that. Those are diminishing anyway. But even just the connection to how your IT is, is fed into the buildings, how your IT is managed and maintained, and whose server closets it in, and, and who, who has access to those, who has the ability to help you with your Wi-Fi connections and all of that. Like, landlords have no ability to... to um, to assist any of that because they're not directly uh, a party to your agreement. So I think, I think companies should really be looking, um, if not making a change, they should be looking at contingency plans and making sure they have a plan in place. If, you know, if there's a disruption to their business because of what's going on with WeWork. I think to sum up what everyone said, there is a very distinct difference between something that, is good for occupiers of real estate, something that's good for landlords and something that's good for co-working companies, right? All of those are different um, levels of, of and different objectives of each party. Like WeWork as a product offering is great for occupiers, not all occupiers, but some occupiers. The fact that co-working spaces like WeWork or spaces or whomever exists is fundamentally good for the market. It creates a new product type that, it, that didn't exist previously that now exists. And that creates optionality for occupiers, and it's their choice whether they locate there or not. Is it good for landlords? Clearly not. If WeWork is going to be defaulting on all of these leases, um, there's been multiple rounds of these renegotiations. I think there have probably been um, other leases that um, you know happened even prior to them going public where they got into a bad location, they had to figure out how to get out of it. It's very hard as a landlord to go after a defaulted tenant and sue them for damages and prove damages and show that you mitigated damage properly. Um, obviously, it is very state to state, but a lot of landlords, when they're thinking, okay, do I go and have this massive litigation against this defaulting tenant or do I settle for some kind of reasonable amount and move on with my life? Most of the time they choose to settle. There's also very serious ramifications in many states if you do go to court and have like an actual judge uh, rule, whether it's like an administrative judge or if it's a trial, uh, which like most of these trials are usually waived in uh, these lease agreements that it'll go to arbitration or you know some sort of judge to make a decision. But imagine that there's some precedent set for any tenant being able to terminate their lease and only have to pay six months rent. That'd be really, really bad if you're the owner of a large scale property. Um, the other thing I, I wanted to point out is that um, when you think about co-working in a building, right, it really competes with the building. You know, if you're a giant landlord and you have WeWork as a tenant, you basically just, you know, leased to a competitor that's now going to be taking your same product and competing with you for all of the balance of your space. And one of the beautiful things about the shared space, um, like more operating agreement, um, kind of hotel model for co-working is that part of these agreements are including access to all this information, all of this data, and they're really acting as a almost subcontractor of the landlord of how do we get these tenants to stay in the building and they're no longer thinking, oh, I have a growing tenant, I need to relocate this to my center across the street. They're thinking, I need to figure out you know, how to keep this tenant here as long as I possibly can and create revenue for this landlord. 
Um, and then I, I think in the future, you will also see some sort of incentive built into these agreements, if this doesn't exist already, that says that any tenant that graduates from this co-working model and leases space on a direct basis in the building, that they'll be able to participate in some manner, whether it be a commissionable event or some sort of bonus or participation in the rent for a brief period of time. I think that that will happen to really align the incentives between the co-working operator operating under a service agreement for the space and the landlord. Yeah, those are those are great points. I I want to get back to your comment though around like it's good for you know the model is good for um, the marketplace. I think I think there's an exception. I think the industry jumped the shark when you started seeing co-working like really we work do these enterprise leases with major companies. So they go in and lease, I'll give you an example, with Amazon, they go and lease 200,000 feet on a 15-year lease. Amazon comes in and leases all of it from them for three years, right? And and Amazon is doing it to bridge to their new building that's being built. But WeWork is still leasing it. Now, they didn't just lease those three floors or two floors. They leased another you know, two or three floors that they're doing the traditional co-working on. But a lot of that space has been sitting vacant for years now. It's just sitting there because it was built for Amazon. Um, it was built a, as this enterprise model. We're going to take care of these large customers. And and the large customers are using WeWork. And they it, it's almost like free money. They're using it, these these large organizations to be real flexible with their portfolios. So they're either using it as a bridge to get to something else and they're, and they're coming in and coming out, or they take their portfolio and they look at it and say, okay, we have these large long-term leases. We can e- either continue to scale in large long-term leases, or we can go and overpay short-term, but have the flexibility if the market turns and our business takes a step back, we can just exit those locations without any major uh, you know, financial impacts and without any long-term tail on those leases. So um, they're love, they were loving the model. IBM did it in an entire building in New York City, I think in 2018, and they're completely out of it, right? They just canceled that lease where traditional leases have these long tails on it. Um, so I, I think that part of the, the model is broken, and I don't see, uh, I don't see landlords playing ball is they start to dig in to you know to the underlying use and strategy for those types of leases anymore. Yeah, it's it's a great option to have available for those companies like IBM and Amazon and they took advantage of an opportunity that existed in a moment in time that likely will not exist in the same fashion in the future. At the same time it has created some unhealthy market dynamics in certain parts of certain cities where uh, WeWork has a ton of space that's now going to be flooding the market all at once. You know, if you're a landlord or th- whether you have WeWork in your building or not, and there's massive blocks of space coming online uh, from WeWork defaults at the same time that you already have blocks of space coming online from other tenants defaulting and other tenants downsizing and sublet space and all that, just add one more, uh, you know, factor of how space is being delivered to the market that was. Uh, I don't want to say unexpected in the event of WeWork, since I think a lot of people in the real estate community have predicted that this was coming for a long time. But you know, there's another medium of space hitting the market, and that's another um, you know bad news, bad day for landlords. Brian, it looks like you have one comment to make. Let's let's hear it, and then let's go to John uh, on a new topic. Yeah, I'll just say that having worked uh, through the WeWork um, 
life cycle, as I guess we can call it, at a large uh, commercial real estate firm, or two of them, that do a lot of work with landlords. I have zero sympathy for any of these landlords because you know, brokers would put WeWork in front of their owners and they would jump at them. Landlords were you know, drunk on WeWork occupancy and everyone was chasing these deals. And I shouldn't say everyone. Most landlords were chasing these deals. They loved the idea of you know, leasing their entire building or huge blocks of space to a tenant that you know, everyone was looking at each other. They go, what is, what's going on? This tenant, the model is, is unproven and the model is not scalable or, or uh, certainly not proven at this scale. And everyone was jumping on the, the bandwagon and everyone was doing it. So, um, you know, this is, this is their time to take, the, uh, take it in the chin a little bit. So interesting to watch what's happening in the industrial space. Um, is that market remaining strong? Are we seeing the beginning of a leveling off? Um, and what I noticed was, okay, Westcore on a buying spree, um, really smart folks here, just picked up three and a half million square feet of industrial in California. Um, <clears throat> it's called the Odyssey Portfolio. It's in Livermore, it's in Valencia, San, uh, it's in Chino, Inland Empire. A lot of the buildings, not all, are Bentall Green Oak as the seller. And just this idea of a moment in time when Bentall Green Oak thinks I'm getting out and Westcore says, I'll take it, I'm getting in. I mean, these are basic industrial, this is what they do. <clears throat> so they're bullish. Um, and let me give you a backdrop. Maybe this is why it occurred to me. Um, our, our mutual friend and partner, uh, David Marino, just was doing a little preview of an industrial market repeat report for across the country. And here's a couple bullet points that he's highlighting. Um, in every market across the country, availability rates are back to pre-COVID levels. And in some markets, Inland Empire, Seattle, Denver, Austin, New York, availability rates today are significantly higher than pre-COVID. Interesting. Um, we now have 156 million square feet of industrial space on the market for sublease across the country. It's the highest since 2010, and it's doubled in the last year. Hmm. Super interesting. Oh, by the way, you know, most brokerage companies report and measure vacancy rates. So that sublease availability isn't in those vacancy numbers yet. Um, and oh, by the way, there's 558 million square feet of projects under construction. Hmm. Most are not leased. Most are due to complete in the next 12 months. And again, those numbers aren't in the vacancy reports. They're in the availability reports, but most brokerage companies report vacancy rates. So is that the leading edge of a storm or the leading edge of you know, a low pressure system? You tell me. Uh, and then there are these folks that remain bullish on core industrial in growth markets. Um, super interesting when you know willing buyers and willing sellers come together. Um, it's hard to parse the comp. The, the real deal did a pretty good job for the buildings up in, in uh, Livermore. One was a big manufacturing site for Tesla. Anyway, those buildings on average 252 a foot. Um, so here you've got some really smart folks buying in, presumably some really smart folks at Bentall Green Oak and this other seller was New Tower Trust um, deciding to take the exit ramp. So who's right? Place your bets. Pretty interesting to watch that play out. What do you think? So before placing a bet on who's right, who's wrong, you know, whether there's going to be appreciation or depreciation in the assets, sometimes I wonder if 
people buying these portfolios are actually bullish on their investment or they're just out there selling investors, hey, we, we're raising money, this is what we're buying, this is the strategy, so that they can collect fees. I mean, the, the reality of most of these funds is that the general partner co-invest is so small that you make back all of your invested money and fees, usually by the time you've even acquired the property with acquisition fees and portfolio management fees, property management on all of these different things. And this is not speaking specifically to Westcore whatsoever. It's just speaking in general to people that are buying these portfolios, given that there's such smart people on both sides of these transactions, and not, not just these, but all of these transactions or most of these transactions that are occurring, you know, willing seller, willing buyer, it really makes me wonder whether the buyers in this case have a massive bias for action because that's essentially their company. I mean, imagine if your company only made money by buying property and prices are messed up interest rates are weird and you have the option to buy property and hope it goes well or not buy property and make no money. <laughs> it's like, obviously there's a bias for action. So uh, I think it's a, a weird situation. And then if you're a seller, you also have a bias for action. If you bought these prices at a much lower price point and you have a participation in the upside and somebody's willing to pay you uh, a price that seems consistent with what it would have been last year or two years ago, and you have the ability to get out and lock in profits at sort of a uncertain time, I think that's also a bias for action to be able to liquidate your fund and take profits and start raising again and probably be deploying capital in six to 12 months when maybe prices will have corrected. So I don't know. I think the bias for action from both parties on each side incentivizes the buyer to be more likely to be wrong than the seller, but we'll see. Let me just say, I, there are folks you know, uh, transacting for fees out there. We've talked about it on the life science side where people are moving forward at a really um, um, unusual time for risky investments. And it feels like it's about, you know, um, that's what they're there to do, move the money. I don't think that's the case with Westcore. These guys have their own money alongside their investor money. And this is just who they are, uh, industrial investors and bullish and up to the right. Because the question at the end of the day, both for, Westcore and or for Bentall Green Oak is like, what else are you going to do with your money? Um, where else do you invest it? Is there some other asset class that's got better, 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 um, you know, it looks better over the long term? What, what does Bentall Green Oak do with the proceeds of the sale now? Do they take their, pay their taxes and sit on the sideline? I don't think so. They're a real estate investment management firm. So what, what else do you do? And as you look around, um, no, I think, uh, I, I wouldn't bet against Westcore. I think these guys are sticking to their core, sticking to what they know, um, their money alongside their investors' money, and just making bets on California. At the same time, they, by the way, they just sold. Where did they sell? Um, interesting to note that they sold an asset in. Well, they bought another Bentall Green Oak, five hundred twenty thousand feet in Texas, but then they they just sold. Anyway, I lost that article. Oh, in Denver, they sold an industrial asset in Denver. So here they're picking their markets growth sectors otherwise um no i think i think they're smart folks yeah i think tucker i think you're on to something i think the f f far and wide the you can't really take much out of these large portfolio sales and really the buying and selling of assets because the underlying motivations are tied to a strategy that's that's may not be tied to the health of the market or where the market's going or or the fundamentals currently existing in the market because 
Um, you know, one might be doing an interest rate play. One might be trying to return. Uh, you know, a fun life is is coming to an end, and have you know have to return uh, proceeds to investors. Right? You just have to really look at. Uh, you have to look at the market differently. But I think I think the the story is it, to me is that um, you know the 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 days of the industrial. Um, Growth in the days of industrial developers making easy money, build it and they will come, is over. And you're going to see a lot of, um, you know, you're going to see a lot of these types of deals get done that are uniquely structured around the motivations of the buyer and the seller, not around market fundamentals. And that's that's going to be a shift from where we've been because the market has just been so healthy. Everybody thinks they can be. Uh, an industrial developer because it's easy to buy something. I was just on the phone with an investor uh, for a project. We're looking to potentially relocate a company um, out of the Northeast into the Southeast. And, uh, you know, this, this particular investor is like, yeah, we bought a portfolio. All the in-place rents were, you know, down around three, $4 a foot. By the time they, they roll next year, we're going to be at seven, $8 a foot. These are class C industrial buildings they put zero money into them, and they're forecasting a doubling in rent or more, just out of just because, right? So I'm like, oh, really? Okay, that's that's really where you're underwriting these rents, just because of market appreciation, and and that's you know that's the reality of where industrials been, and those in, those investors will want to think that they're the smartest people in the room because the market has allowed them to do that, and I think those days may be over. Uh, and a lot of investors are going to see the realities of increased supply, decreased demand, and having to compete for, for tenants again. One of the things that is kind of crazy and important to note, so talking about a scenario where industrial rents go from, uh, what did you say, $4 to $7, right? So in that in that scenario... If you assume that cap rates have gone from 4% to 6% for industrial, which is just rough, obviously it's very market dependent, but to think that cap rates have gone up by 2% for a class C industrial building is, is probably roughly accurate. That only impacts the value of the building. Uh, like the, the building now is only like roughly 15% more valuable because of how big of an impact cap rates have. So, you know, people thinking, oh, my gosh, the building's worth twice as much. Rent's doubled. They're almost doubled. Not the case at all. And that goes to show you how serious the headwinds are, how intensely you've had to increase rents in order to maintain property values. Yeah. And that's, you know, you, you start to get in trouble when you are trying to increase property values by increasing rents. Right. You're playing a math game where it's a supply and demand game. Right. So. You, landlords that think they can be be on paper, okay, look, at the cap rates are doing this. I've got to increase my rents by that to be able to increase my value either for a refi or for an exit. Well, guess what? The demand of the tenants in the marketplace is what, what drives rents. Tenants are, again, in industrial, becoming the most important people in the room. It's not the bankers in New York. It's not the smart investment funds that are doing these large industrial deals. It's not the developers, it's the tenants. The ones that pay the rent are starting to be the ones that are, are the most important. And I think there's a lot of people that are going to be left behind because you, you can't just play math and try to make your buildings worth more money. You need to find quality tenants that are going to pay rent first. 
Yeah. Tenants have always been the lifeblood of the real estate in- industry, whether it's commercial or even the, you know, resi commercial real estate markets. Um, and it, it is interesting, right, Brian, if you follow that line of thinking, and I'm not saying I disagree whatsoever, investing in real estate really becomes uh, how do you maximize rents uh, while hoping that you don't get screwed over by interest rates, right? Nobody has control of interest rates. Uh, and I, I think that it is a stretch to say that any of these people, especially the individual or regional investor, and even most of these you know large national global investors, I think it's a big stretch to think that anyone has a crystal ball and can predict what are, is going to happen to interest rates. I mean, if you knew definitively what the um, you know yield curve for treasuries is going to be over the next five years, you know you could make billions or trillions of dollars with that information. The reality is nobody knows, right? We have a bunch of people making predictions. We have different people making very different predictions. Interest rates are going to go up. They're going to go down. They're going to stabilize where they're at for a really long time, maybe for the next decade. Nobody knows. Um, so based on that line of thinking, all of these people investing in real estate are trying to create enough you know, value add to mitigate the risk of interest rate increases so they don't get blown up and hoping interest rates go down so they can produce extraordinary returns. And that's that's sort of the investing in real estate game. So I'll offer one thought. Um, Why I like industrial, um, if you're going to invest in commercial real estate, in the industrial building dynamic, more of the value, more of what you're paying for is just the land. Like the, the percentage of the total acquisition cost that goes to the structure is radically reduced. It's a fairly inexpensive shell building because over time, you know, buildings will degrade. But over time, I believe land is a finite resource, especially well-located land. And so I, I have a confidence that over time, the land value is going to continue to increase over the, over the long term. And having less of the value that you're paying tied up in some structure that's beautiful today, but it's going to degrade over time. I like industrial because the value is in the land. Yeah. At, at the same time, though, land is much more interest rate dependent than income producing property is, right? If interest rates are really high, it changes the development pro forma. So it's risky. But I mean, John, I agree with you on a very long term basis. If whatever you're buying is essentially covered land play over a, a long enough number of years, then 100%. But if you're a fund investor, right? I mean, maybe that works for Westcore, but if you're a private equity firm and you're buying land and you know that you need to return that capital in 10 years and there happens to be a pandemic that creates wild inflation and interest rates go up and interest rates are high in the last three, four years of your fund life cycle, you're toast. And there's almost nothing you could have done to prevent that short of having a crystal ball, um, you know, besides just being more conservative in your investment approach. And if you're more conservative in your investment approach, and those things didn't happen, then you would have had worse returns and your investors would have looked at your benchmark compared to other benchmarks and said, huh, maybe I allocate less capital to this GP in the future because these other GPs produce higher returns. So I think it's just really challenging for limited partners and investors picking these funds to invest in to evaluate what kind of returns are these people getting relative to the risks that they're taking. But let's move Let's um, move on to this topic. We don't have a whole ton of time left in this episode. Owen, I know you had another new story you wanted to close us out with. Yeah, and this is this conversation we've been having is perfect uh, for a lead-in for this uh, discussion. We've already talked about this a little bit on the pod so far um, in previous episodes, but I just want to talk about the real estate um, lending kind of doom loop is what they call it, where one bad thing 
makes another thing go bad and the other thing going bad just creates more issues for the first thing that went bad. So a, a constant loop. And the we've talked about this, like I said, but there's this tremendous amount of um, both commercial real estate loans um, and other lending uh, matters that are tied to commercial real estate coming due between now and the end of 2024. And the alert that I've been reading about most recently is that the real people that are in trouble are these regional banks. And so when I say regional banks, let's assume it's a bank with less than $250 billion of assets. And so for those that like are trying to figure out, well, is that a lot or is that a little, you know, JP Morgan has about $4 trillion of assets. So we're talking about small banks. Um, and it was interesting. I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal that talked about this exact matter. And between 2015 and 2022, um, banks more than doubled their indirect real estate exposure, including loans to non-bank mortgage companies, real estate investment trusts um, that owned and operated buildings. Um, and they lent to these landlords uh, for the sake this was the place to make money. Um, it also included an increase in CMBS loans, which is commercial mortgage-backed securities. And so what was so ast astonishing was the amount of money and the amount of um, the percentage that these regional banks accounted for in terms of the amount of loans that were delivered between these period of time. So again, 2015 to 2022, um, they were basically, they accounted for 74% um, of the total increase of loans during that period. Um, it's astonishing how much they drove the market. And what's concerning is that while values have dropped, um, these some of these loans that are coming due, I'm just wondering, like, what, what happens? I mean, there's just no, with interest rates are where they are, and nobody saw that coming, like Tucker was talking about, the ability to refinance, especially office buildings. So let's talk about office buildings, like where occupancies have been decimated by some uh, buildings based on a variety of factors. How do these people refinance? You know, there's all these um, bank executives quoted in this article saying that in many cases where they're calling the lenders, they don't even get a return phone call. They're just like, I'm not even going to spend a moment doing, you know, having a discussion because there's nothing we're going to do. And so we've got $900 billion of, of property loans maturing both this year. So we got, what, four months left of 2023 and next year. Um, and I don't think anyone wants to catch a falling knife. And there was a big alarm in 2008 when we were in a recession. But I think I mentioned on a previous pod, the difference then was that interest rates are much lower and there was still a demand for commercial real estate um, by the occupants, the tenants. And now we've got kind of a perfect storm where we don't have that demand as we once did. And interest rates are significantly higher now than they were then. So um, there's that saying like nobody wants to catch a falling knife. I don't, I don't see the pathway here. Um, and the article talked about this could be a real problem for these regional banks, um, not not the likes of J.P. Morgan, of course. Yeah. So, Owen, one of the things that is is pretty wild to think about is, you know, going off of this, hey, the, the people that are in trouble are banks that have less than $250 billion in assets. The amount of banks that have over $250 billion in assets is, is very low. I mean, you, you take out the, the big four banks and after that, there's maybe like six or seven, maybe maybe eight banks nationally that have over $250 billion in assets right now, right? I mean, it's it's really small. I mean, just to put it in perspective, like I'm just, you know, reading off some names of banks that have less than $250 billion in assets that people are probably really familiar with, like Morgan, Morgan Stanley, less than $250 billion in assets. 
uh, Zion's Bank, which is you know owns California Bank and Trust and a bunch of other major banks. Less than that, um, less than two hundred fifty billion. State Street Bank only has two hundred ninety billion of assets, and that's probably one of the most well-known you know national banks. BNY Mellon only has three hundred forty-two billion, right? So you start thinking about uh, you know how few banks actually have over that threshold. Um, and you really get back to what we were talking about several months ago when First Republic Bank was, you know, going through it and, you know, ultimately sold to J.P. Morgan is that really all of all of these banks that do commercial real estate lending that aren't, you know, globally systematically important banks uh, are, are potentially at risk, depending on how toxic their loan portfolio and what happens with interest rates over the next 12 months. Uh, I think that the banks that are much more focused on real estate lending at a large scale uh, are are uh, there's probably more pain to be had. So um, I I definitely am nervous about that, and I think tying it back to how does this affect those people that are internal at companies leading real estate teams? There's more financial due diligence that you have to do on these landlords than ever. I mean, going into one of one of these you know, into a new development, uh, or going into just leasing a building. If you're a large tenant, you need to understand their credit worthiness of the landlord. You need to understand their debt structure, whether they're going to be able to refinance. And most importantly, you need to have offset rights for tenant improvements, uh, and, and things of that nature. You need to have, you know, uh, non-disturbance agreements and, and be minimizing the risk unless you're really comfortable with the credit worthiness of the landlord uh, or confident in what will happen if the bank takes the building over. Yeah, I, I think um, on the first point is there's, you know, there's a lot of little little embers burning in this area right now. And I was reading, uh, I hope I get the data right because this is from memory, but I believe the bank is called Republic First, is a tiny little bank that's kind of teetering on uh, insolvency. And it's you know it's going to be a good test for um, the federal government to see if if that bank um, you know if they allow it to fail and what they do with the deposits right because sixty percent of the bank's um, deposits are uninsured and and as of the date of the article I was reading a lot of them were still with the bank and they hadn't they there hadn't been a run it, run on it but. You know, as the news gets gets out there, and as um, uh, you know, as speculation grows, you'd have to think that that may change. And what happens with that bank could really systemically impact all of these smaller banks. And it's uh, it's a powder keg in the 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 government's ability to you know plug holes in the dam, um, you know, with their fingers may be significantly challenged. And it's an area that we really have to look at. And I'm not so much worried about the the mistakes that companies have made, right? If they haven't been, uh, these banks haven't been good at aligning risk um, of their portfolios with the realities of a market that doesn't always continue to perform well, um, so what? I want it, but the impact going forward, uh, because these banks are the ones that own, you know, somewhere between 70 and 80% of all commercial real estate debt, right? And and it doesn't, you know, what that means is they're the ones have financed 70, 80% of all the projects out there. And that that is a massive driver for, think about all the construction jobs that creates. Think about, think about how, how many um, 
you know, how many municipalities and cities and towns and companies will be impacted if the debt isn't there to loan. And, and right now, there's kind of, it's all kind of frozen. But long term, if, if those banks don't return to this marketplace, I think we'll see a, a big impact for, you know, for the economy in the future. You're right, Brian. They, those banks account for 75% of all commercial real estate loans as of the third quarter in 2023. So pretty scary. And then to your earlier point, um, yeah, if powder keg is right. So the only way these uh, lenders are going to be willing to refinance these loans for these landlords, let's just, I mean, is one of two things. We talked about earlier in the podcast, raising rents, like landlords that are dependent on raising rents. Well, nobody's doing that right now. Um, so if they can't raise rents to cover their loan, they have to then rebalance the loan by kicking in potentially millions of dollars of their own money. And that's where they're faced with this decision to make. Do I spend millions of dollars to rebalance this loan so I can even refinance it in the first place? And many are just saying no. And I think that's where you're going to see these properties sell well below replacement costs. It's already happening. Um, but I'm just, I, there's been so much talk about this. I'm just so curious because is this a, really a tidal wave coming or is this just a ripple and something's going to work itself out? Because we can't bail every bank out, right? Like that's what happened last or earlier this year. It can't repeat itself over and over and over again for every regional bank that fails. We can only do so much. And that's where I'm really interested to see what happens next year. Yeah, I, I think one, one um hint to to where we're going and there's certain people that i uh admire for just how good they are to what they do and and barry sternlich is one of them and if you noticed in august quietly i don't know quietly but i didn't see much about it uh but i did see a, a one headline that they are in the process of raising a distressed fund for uh, debt and real estate assets right so the 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 smart players are out there raising money uh, and they're not raising money from their friends. They're raising money from like CalPERS or teachers or these huge pension funds that own a lot of the real estate that's getting impacted are going to be the the first investors into these distressed funds to then to then either reposition or buy these assets at significantly less value. Uh, this is the other point I make. I've been getting cold called from somebody and I I finally answered it, and they got me off guard. And, and it's and it's someone trying to uh, effectively get us uh, or get me to provide them information around um, vacant office buildings because they are, it's a it's a uh, self storage or store or, or small storage company that's in the marketplace with they've raised a couple hundred million dollars and they're trying to buy distressed office buildings to turn them into self storage. In urban environments, so you know, there's all sorts of crazy money out there and ideas, and um, and you know, it's it'll be interesting to see where this thing uh, plays out. A couple comments. First, what Brian just said about these storage people trying to buy distressed office buildings. I don't know how the heck that's going to work with how expensive it is to operate these op <laughs> these office buildings. Right? Imagine going in and having a like. $2 a square foot a month, just in operating expenses as like your base that you need to cover, uh, you know, uh, just, just to break even on operating expenses for the building. Uh, pretty, pretty wild. I am curious what their models look like and 
what their rent pro formas are like and what other competition exists. If you can get some, you know, urban office building, how much more are people willing to pay for storage across the street versus, you know, five minutes or 10 minutes out in the suburbs where land may be way less. But the, the points that I wanted to make are that if interest rates go down, everything we're talking about with all this bank distress, distress and lending distress and all that, everyone's most everyone is basically immediately fine. Right. If you could rewind to the Silicon Valley bank collapse, right? Obviously, this would never happen. But just say that the news breaks, that their balance sheet's all screwed up. And then the next day, interest rates go down by 100 basis points. Everyone's fine. There's no collapse. They're now solvent again. Everything's good. So we'll see what happens. I mean, maybe interest rates go down. Maybe we're at the peak. Maybe we start seeing interest rates go down. And if that happens, then everyone's good. The other point I wanted to make is that there is a difference between uh, rents increasing uh, at lease expiration and market rents going up, right? A lot of people that talk in an abstract way about the real estate market are saying, oh, well, rents are coming down now. That doesn't matter if you're looking at the performance of a real estate asset. I mean, it, it does, but it's not the most important thing. It's what are your rents right now, right? You could have signed a lease that's escalating at 3% a year 10 years ago, right? And if you're an industrial tenant, even though rental rates, even though availability in the Inland Empire has gone from, you know, has, has come down, right? Or rather has come down and then went up and then probably is going to come down again. That doesn't matter. Right. Rents are still double what they were. Maybe they're, you know, instead of being 2.3 times from what you're paying now, maybe they're two times. So it's, it's important to keep that in mind when you think about uh, the valuation of these buildings is you don't know what these existing tenants are paying. And, you know, just because interest, uh, just because rental rates are coming down doesn't mean that the rents are coming down so much or, you know, or conversely or the other direction relative to what people are paying now. Yeah, I've got a comment that I think might put a bow on this whole episode conversation. Um, I'll start with this. I mean, this is only my fourth down cycle I've endured. Um, I remember getting into this business and learning survive till 95. And it was just last week I heard survive till 25. Here we go again. Like history may not repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes. Um, so what, what have we learned? It's amazing how we forget the lessons we've learned through the prior cycles. And it occurs to me, um, it's this question of like, how will this investment endure through the down cycle. And it's like we stopped asking that question. There was, We were in this frenzy of a, of a boom market that lasted so long, people stopped asking that question. So let's go back to talk about, Tucker, you brought up a brilliant point about these 10-year fund life real estate you know, investment groups. What are you thinking about? Like when we do a lease versus buy analysis for a tenant who's thinking about buying a building, it's like, it's like signing a 15-year lease. If you can't plan on being out in 10 years when you're investing in real estate. That's like saying, I'm going to get in and I'm going to get out. It doesn't work that way. How will this investment endure through the down cycle? We work. How will this investment endure during the down cycle? Uh, it won't, right? We just stopped asking that question. Banks and all the bank loan trouble? Okay, 70% loan to value. That's how they do it. We can, we, we're good. We're in the money as long as the market doesn't go down by more than 30%. Well, in some places, the market's down 40 50%, so the banks are suddenly in trouble. Anyway, I just want to remind us all to never forget to ask that question in this cycle or in the next. You know, how will this investment endure through the down cycle? Because the cycles are a force of nature. It's not like it's not going to happen. The shape's a little different. It's always surprising, uh, but it's going to happen. It's like the tide, the moons. Uh, it's a force of nature. 
I don't think I don't think that it's a reality that investors can look um, in longer term cycles. I mean, 10 years is a long cycle for investors, right? Most investors uh, they take out certain classes, pension funds and and uh, sovereign wealth funds. But what what we should remind our listeners to is our clients should be looking at who owns their building again. I think, Tucker, you made this point. And what's the strategy of that company? What's their investment horizon? Where their capital comes from and when it's due? What the debt looks like in the building? Because you're you're creating a relationship with your owner. Um, and, and certain owners are going to really think thrive and th- and 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 be be there when you need them um, what the others are going to cut back services are going to cut back staff are going to try to continue to push fees and you know just find ways to create more revenue and and there's you know there's those um, I would say those cutthroat more uh, New York investment fund type owners, and then you've got your long-term stable owners, and you're going to start to see the quality of those two separate um, in terms of the experience that our clients have. That's my prediction on where this thing ends up and how it impacts our, uh, you know, our tenant base. Great points from everyone. Let's wrap up there, John. I think that if the philosophy of people that are buying and selling commercial real estate has potentially uh, changed either at least for a moment or maybe permanently, never looking at the downside, then companies that occupy real estate need to change their approach too. I need to take that into consideration when they're making real estate decisions. Uh, that concludes episode 20. Thanks so much to all of our listeners. Big milestone to get to 20 episodes. We're excited to keep it going and their episode. Thanks. Thanks.